0: Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sistas is an online global network empowering black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship and community. For more information, please visit our website at CohortSistas.com. Welcome back to the Cohort Sistas podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Insad Dada, a vector biologist and microbial ecologist who studies how microbes shape mosquito biology and mosquito-borne disease transmission. Currently an assistant professor at Arizona State University and the founder of the Mosquito Microbiome Consortium, Dr. Dada received her PhD in microbiology from the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, her master's degree in biology from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and a bachelor's degree in zoology from the University of Calabar in Nigeria. Having studied all around the world, in this episode, Dr. Dada talks about her experiences researching and learning in different countries as a Black woman while working towards her doctoral degree, jumping right into her PhD from her master's, and building an international research profile. Let's get into our conversation. Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, Dr. Insat Dada. You just recently, you just let me know before we started recording that you secured a faculty position. So I just wanna start off by saying congratulations. The academic job market right now is crazy. So I'm so excited for you and and excited to learn more about your journey to how you got here and to have you share some wisdom and gems with the cohort sisters community. But thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit about like where you are right now and what you're up to? Yeah,
1: sure. I Um, temporarily in Nigeria. I moved here a couple of months ago to spend time with my family while transitioning to this new job and new place. And prior to moving here, I lived in Norway. Yeah, what I do now, I would say that I wear several hats I am first and foremost a researcher. I conduct research at the intersection of the biology and control of disease vectors from the perspective of their associated microbes. I lead a research consortium called the Muscular Microbiome Consortium, which is an international collaborative initiative that is aimed at advancing research on and their associated microbes. And this is a rapidly growing area of mosquito biology research, but there are no agreed up methods of doing things. So we're working on streamlining methods and developing guidelines for this kind of research, and especially expanding this area of research from laboratory to field mosquito populations. I am also a global health research consultant and I hold honorary or secondary appointments at uh, various institutions like the Tropical Infectious Diseases Research Centre at the University of Abome Kalavi in Benin and the Prince of songkla University in Thailand. And like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, later this year, I'll be joining Arizona State University as an assistant professor, where I will establish my research program and continue with all of the activities that I've just mentioned.
0: You are busy, but also super well-connected. I'm really curious about, wow, how did you build a global network of research collaboration and connection? So, And maybe I'm jumping ahead because you went to school in Nigeria, in the UK, in Norway. You have collaborations in Thailand. Now you're going to be moving to the US soon. Like you've been all over, you've been doing your research really all over the world. Can you just kind of walk us through how you developed relationships, research relationships with people from around the world? I would say that that
1: is one huge perk about the kind of work that I do. I have been studying mosquitoes and biology as well as the associated microbes for about 16 years now. And one of the really cool thing about this work is that it takes me around the world to the mosquitoes everywhere. But as someone who is from the quote-unquote global south, my work has has largely been focused in this part of the world, i have largely focused on Africa, Southeast Asia and Latin America. So I would say that uh, the connections have largely been as a result of the type of work that I do and the kinds of people that I have met along the way. But that is not to say that I have not been proactive about seeking these connections and that I haven't had help along the way. So what has helped me on top of being naturally exposed to this global community by virtue of the work that I do is that I am a very curious person and I'm not afraid to ask questions So I ask a lot of questions. I try to meet people and try to to get opportunities to talk to them and learn about their pets and see how I could, you know, follow some of the advices that I get from them. The other thing that I mentioned was getting help or having help. I have had great mentors who have opened doors for me, who, you know, they're like, hey, and so you're interested in so-and-so-and-so, I know so-and-so person, would you be interested in getting in touch with them and asking them questions or, you know, building a new uh, network collaboration. So that has also helped as well.
0: Nice. Okay, so let's back up. I know I just kind of jumped right in, <laughs> but why mosquitoes? Why did you become interested in mosquitoes and why did you end up studying mosquitoes and building a research career around mosquitoes and vector-borne diseases?
1: That is a good question. So I am from Nigeria and we have the highest prevalence of uh, malaria, which is a mosquito-borne disease. And growing up in Nigeria, I, I have been... Should I say fortunate or unfortunate to have been to have had malaria, but fortunate in the sense that I have survived it, and this is not the case for so many people, especially kids under the age of five and pregnant women, as well as some of my loved ones as well. So, this got me really curious why am I able to, you know, get well after being infected with malaria, and then there's other people weren't as fortunate as me, so that picked my interest, and I decided to learn more about these mosquitoes and the parasites that they transmit. So I have a background in zoology, and one area of zoology is uh, entomology and parasitology, so it was just a logical or natural progression from what I did during my my bachelor's degree.
0: At what point did you realize that you wanted to pursue a doctoral degree? And what were some steps that you kind of immediately took to prepare you for that journey? That is an interesting question.
1: You know, in my family, I am the first to a PhD. So I did not really have anyone to bounce ideas off of or ask So for me, this this was just, uh, I guess, a logical progression of my uh, my master's degree. I earned a master's degree from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in vector biology and parasitology. And as I was finishing up, I got a job as a research assistant at the school. And while I was, you know, going about my business, one of my mentors then mentioned this PhD fellowship in Norway and asked if I would be interested. So he was like, oh, hey, there is this fellowship and it's for a PhD on mosquito-borne disease based in Norway, but you will be working in Southeast Asia. And I was like, sure, why not? So I applied and I got the fellowship and did the PhD. So I did not have any strategy or anybody to ask questions. I did not even know that you needed to research schools or research programs or, or PIs and that kind of stuff. At the time, I had no idea. I just applied for what was available. I got in and I was excited to to go to Norway. I never even thought that I would live in Norway in the first place because when I said, hey, I would apply, my mentor was a little bit confused. He was like, who do you know in Norway? You know, you've never been to Norway. It's going to be cold. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I did not know anybody in England when I came, so it's uh, – It's just a logical progression of what I'm doing right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would not recommend that approach to anyone knowing what I know now. I think that it's it's imperative that we research going to the schools, the uh, people who will supervise us or who will become uh, mentors and seriously consider all of that before making decisions and if possible apply. As widely as possible, so you have various options.
0: Mm-hmm. Very important advice. I and you kind of preempted my next question, which is going to be whether you felt that that you know after the fact was the right approach. And it sounds like you caution people against um, going in blind. No. <laughs> what were? No. What would you say was the most surprising aspect of you know when you arrived in? Did you? I'm a little bit confused. Were you? in Norway at any point, and then you went to Southeast Asia, or did you immediately go to Southeast Asia? But regardless, what what was the most surprising thing about this new doctoral journey?
1: I was based in Norway, and then worked in Southeast Asia. So I went back and forth between Thailand, Laos, and Norway. I was primarily, I had my home address, office, everything in Norway, but I would go to Asia from time to time. I think the, I did spend an extended period of time in, in Asia. I worked there for a total of about four years and I would spend, I think a few weeks here and there, but at some point I spent say about a year in Thailand and about eight months or so in, in Laos. And the most surprising thing about the PhD program was that it was not necessarily about one's intellectual abilities, rather it was more about how... It was more about perseverance for me, I would say, and that was shocking, you know. We we get used to being very competitive in school, making good, getting good grades, and advancing through um, through school. But then you get into a, a PhD program, and you realize that you're not necessarily competing with anybody, rather than yourself, and you're struggling to, you know, successfully complete your program. So that was that was that was something that I wasn't expecting. I I did not even know to ask before, um, before joining a PhD program.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think, so this question of competition has actually come up in a couple of other interviews. And I think for some people, depending on the nature of their program, you know, depending on if there's a cohort structure versus not, it seems as if that in American doctoral programs where there typically is more of a cohort structure, some people feel like there is an element of competition in the doctoral program. But it it sounds like from the people who I've spoken to who did their doctoral degree outside of the US, where it seems like it's more of a kind of a PI, one advisor, one mentee relationship, um, yeah. that competitive nature isn't so much the case. But either way, as you mentioned, it's like really a game against yourself and like your own willpower and your own brain and not even, not even a a question of like, if you're smart enough, it has nothing to do with intelligence. (laughs) It's just like, can you, (laughs) can you just keep at it for long enough? Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you, like, how long did your PhD take you and how long you said that you were in Thailand for a year and Laos for for eight months, but you know how long did he, were you in different stages of the process? How long was your coursework and how long were you you know in exam periods and collecting the data then writing stuff up? What was that timeline breakdown for you?
1: You know the interesting thing about the fellowship that I got in Norway was that I was first employed by the university before applying or before getting admitted into the PhD program. So it was more of a job than than school. Although there were some course requirements we had to take. We had to take core a course on ethics, research ethics, and then I think we needed a few credit hours on courses that were related to our our project or degree program. So it wasn't as intensive as you have it in the US. So I didn't spend too much time on coursework, but I spent a lot of time out in the field. And it took me about about four years or a little over, or quite a bit
0: over three years to complete my PhD file. I want to take a step back a little bit. So you grew up in Nigeria, went to university in Nigeria. What even inspired you to look outside of the country for graduate education?
1: That's another good question. I think after earning a bachelor's in zoology, I did ask a lot of questions naturally I'm very very curious so I asked a lot of questions about zoology and what I could do with a degree in zoology and I was fortunate to have really really great professors here in Nigeria who told me about exploring a career in entomology, in parasitology, because I was really, really interested in understanding mosquitoes and other similar insects that transmit human diseases or transmit pathogens that cause human diseases. And entomology and parasitology really did pique my interest and I decided to figure out what to do whether or not I could get further education in this area within Nigeria I did explore options in Nigeria but then most of what I was getting most of the great options that I was getting were outside of Nigeria and I think I did. At the time, I think that was when we were just getting access to the internet. So it was quite an exciting time for me, you know, being able to Google stuff and play with the internet and and all of that stuff at the time. So I did find good schools in the UK. I did find a couple of schools in the US, but I noticed that the programs took longer in the U.S. First of all, the U.S. was too far away from home. But then in the U.K., they did have the right combination of what I wanted. I was really interested in doing both entomology and parasitology. So I applied to um, some of the schools that Offered them as separate uh, masters programs, and one school that offered it as uh, a combined masters program, which was the one that I went to. I got into all of the schools that I I applied to, and decided to choose the one that offered both parasitology and entomology as one masters program.
0: Nice, yes, I love that. I applied to everything. I got into everything. Girl, you better. <laughs> I am curious about your experience and interactions with, you know, especially coming from Nigeria and then going to the UK and then going to Norway and then even going to different Asian countries. How do you feel, like, what was your experience as a Black woman, as an African woman in in the UK, in Norway, in Thailand, and or was there one specific country where your experience like really stood out, either positively or negatively?
1: I would say in the U.S. I lived in the U.S. for a little while. I did my postdoc at the C2C. So I was there for, I think, about four years or four plus years. So my experience as a black woman really did stick out in, in the U.S. In the U.K., I was a little bit naive. I had just left Nigeria for the first time on my own as, what, 21, 22, so trying to figure out life, figure out this new country, figure out this new education system and whatnot, so I did not necessarily pay attention to <laughs> to my blackness, if you will, and I guess I also existed in a, a teeny tiny bubble of, you know, my university students, and and mentors. So I did not explore much while I was in the UK. But fast forward to Norway, I also spent quite a bit of time there. I was there for about five, six years, and then I, I came back again. I really loved it there in Norway so much so that I, I took a job and, and returned uh, a couple of years ago. I enjoyed it because the people were – there were very – I would say reserved and honest. You would know what they thought about you and I really appreciate that. So it's different from the UK and the US where you can't necessarily tell what people are thinking when they're talking to you. They could be smiling, but not like you. <laughs> you wouldn't know. But in Norway, people generally would you know, show you show you what they thought about you. So I enjoyed it there. But in Asia, it was it was funny because I worked in some rural communities while I was there. And I realized that they had a word for foreigner, which was typically a white foreigner. And when they saw me, they were a little bit confused. They were like, okay, this is a foreigner but she's not white, but she's doing the kind of work that the white foreigners do. So they were kind of confused, like, what do we call her? Do we call her the same thing that we would call a white foreigner who does the kind of job that she does, which I found really, really interesting. And I've never had that kind of experience elsewhere. So I, I, I found that really, really, really funny. It wasn't offensive to me, especially when I would meet kids and they would be so confused as to what I was. They would touch my skin to see if it would rub off on them, and they would try to touch my hair as well to figure out what was going on with this foreigner, why she didn't look like all of the other white people that they saw. So, yeah, those have been my experiences so far. But in the U.S., I really, 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 really did feel, feel I would say, like a black person. Living in Nigeria, you never really stop to think about your blackness. But <laughs> living in the U.S., that was, that was really eye-opening for me.
0: It was different from any of the other places that I have lived in. Oh, I'm so fascinated by, and I've had conversations with friends who travel a whole lot about this, but I haven't personally experienced a situation where I'm traveling in a place and someone is like trying to touch my hair or touch my skin. And so I'm always fascinated when people feel comfortable by that. I, I think, you know, I don't know if adults were doing this as well, if it was just children. I, I feel like my gut is telling me It was me just that. the kids. Yeah. There's something I about It was like, the kids. It was the kids and it was in a very, very
1: remote village. So I... I wouldn't hold that against them.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying to get at. It's like, you know, there's this childlike curiosity and wonder um, that you, you know, you can't fault yeah. a kid for for being inquisitive. Like that's what we want sure. our children to be in yeah. um, the next generation to be. And so yeah, I'm just always kind of curious about how people receive those kinds of things. And I, I really appreciate that you <laughs> you said. That your experiences were the most were the strongest in the US. And people really discount you like the impact of US race relations and racism. You know, also being born in Nigeria but spending most of my life here, it wasn't until I left the US for a couple of years and, and lived in Kenya that I realized like how much like race had always been, it's always on your mind in America. You just like you can't, you cannot not think about it. I didn't realize that until I was, you know, in Kenya for a long time. And, you know, every once in a while when I would go someplace and like, you know, see white people, I'd be like, oh, okay. Like I forgot, I kind of forgot about y'all, but Hey, (laughs) but it was just on your mind at every single waking point and it doesn't consume you in the way that it, it can and does in America. So I'm glad that you just kind of highlighted that, especially from a, from like an outside perspective. So actually (laughs) knowing, knowing what you know about. Life in America, <laughs> as you were thinking about your faculty options. Well, first of all, actually, before we go, get into that, I'm curious, would you know from at what point did you know that you wanted to pursue a faculty position as opposed to you know doing independent research or you know working continuing to work for a government agency? So, at one point, this is a two part question at what point did you decide that you wanted to pursue the faculty route? And then, secondly, since you you know, have so many, you literally had the entire world <laughs> at your disposal. Um, why come back to the U.S.? Oh,
1: <laughs> good question. Why come back to the U.S.? <laughs> that is a tough one. And that's one question that I grappled with when I was interviewing. I think I will start with that question. Why come back to the U.S.? Because a lot of the opportunities for the kind of work or research that I do are in the U.S. And, you know, in the U.S. people are very, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? I think they will tell you when they're interested in what you're doing. People are very, uh, should I say forward? Is that, is that rude? They're very outspoken about your interests. If they if they're interested in what they're doing, you know, it's very typical for someone to, you know, tell you, hey, I like what you're doing, I'd like to collaborate, I would like I'd like for you to work with me versus in Europe where people are more reserved and they wouldn't necessarily outrightly tell you, oh hey, I'm interested in this and that. And the the fact that I, I did my PhD in um Norway and later came back to live in Norway, I grappled with whether or not to change directions because in Norway not a lot of work is being done on tropical diseases. You have some, some research groups and institutions that do that, but not to the extent that I am doing. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. I wanted to continue. So I explored um, opportunities outside of Norway. I did get an offer in Norway, but that would have meant me switching my focus to focus on Arctic communities and uh, asking research questions that are are relevant to the Norwegian system. So, I mean, that's, that's not a bad thing, but it wasn't it wasn't something that I was really, really interested in doing. So that's why I said yes to the U.S. I did get quite a few interviews in in the U.S. and I, I got two offers in the U.S. as well. So I thought, hey, why not? Let's go back and see what the U.S. has to offer. And to your question about at what point I decided to to continue in academia, I would say it was when I got the opportunity to teach and mentor and this was even before or maybe during my longest postdoc. I have done quite a few post postdoc, I have had quite a few postdoc positions, but the longest was the fellowship that I did at the C to C and I had a an awesome mentor. She exposed me to everything that I was interested in. She gave me the opportunity to try everything, including teaching and mentoring. And I found that I really, really enjoyed teaching. I really enjoyed mentoring, maybe because I I lacked, you know, the kind of mentoring that I I had hoped to have received during um, my doctoral program, I wanted to make sure that people like me would not have to navigate the postgraduate work in the same way that I did. I don't know if that makes any sense. So, yeah, so mentoring and teaching was what drew me. And after exploring a career in, or ish, a very, very short lived career, or I would say training. In a U.S. public health institution, I thought, hey, no, I I still think that I want to go back to teaching and mentoring full time. I want to have full control over the kind of research that I do and how I do it. So, yes, after my fellowship at the CDC, I did get several offers to remain in uh, U.S. public health. But I decided to take up a temporary academic job in Norway to try to get back into
0: academia. Oh gosh, I feel like we don't have time to go through your entire like every single step because it seems as if everything not that you had it all figured out from the start, but that you made very strategic like well-informed, well-thought-out decisions about what your next steps would be and but you were contending with a lot of different options you were contending with you know, working at a public health institution versus academia, there are all these countries in the mix, and you have to figure out your specific line of research. So it just sounds like you were navigating a lot, um, which is really, really awesome. I want to talk a little bit about so you mentioned that when you had a mentor who kind of opened up your eyes to the teaching world and inspired you to also mentor. Can you talk a little bit about how you developed and cultivated that relationship with that mentor?
1: I would say that it was, it developed naturally. I don't know that I necessarily did anything to foster that relationship. She did her postdoc at the same university where, her postdoc or her PhD at the same university where I earned my master's degree. So we met there and we've been in touch ever since. So when I was completing my PhD, she reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to come to the US? And I was like, ah, I don't know. And she's like, but hey, there is this cool fellowship at the CDC. Would you like to try? And I said, okay, sure. And then it wouldn't hurt to explore US public health and see whether or not I would like it. So I applied for the fellowship and got in. And I think we clicked. For me, I am super independent and very, very curious. I'm not afraid to ask questions. And I guess she also appreciated that I would tell her exactly what I needed and how I wanted it. So it was a very great, great relationship in that she did not necessarily have to guess or try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life or where I wanted to go career wise. But she did help me with the strategy. I had no strategy prior to working with her. So she is super cool super smart she does so much at the same time I don't know how
0: she does it but I was able to learn to be strategic while working with her I love it's always such it's like so heartwarming when people find great mentors I have a great mentor now too and I've been working with her for about a year and like this it's just so much better. Like it's so much easier when you have somebody guiding you and supporting you and telling you all the little secrets of, of this world. So I'm so happy that you found that. Okay. So you mentioned that you had, you got all the offers, all the different opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about navigating the academic job market, especially in a pandemic? And then I'm also not sure if you did it remotely, but can you just kind of talk about your, you know, academic job market experience? I did everything remotely, and
1: I cannot overemphasize the importance of practicing everything. Everything, I would say that my first few applications were probably not as strong. Well, I would say that they were not as strong as the ones that got me interviews be open to asking for feedback asking questions and you know reaching out to people and asking them how how they achieve whatever it is that you're interested in achieving i would also mention that being a part of communities similar to cohort sisters has been invaluable throughout this journey because when i first embarked on this on my postgraduate journey I had nothing like this. There was no internet community where you could get on and ask questions or have people share their experiences anonymously. So I have been part of several peer mentoring groups where people share resources, share their experiences where you can ask questions anonymously. I did scar all of those resources and I practiced and prepared prior to my interviews. When I started getting interviews, I started lining up friends and family to interview me. So I had several interviews before my actual interview so that when I was actually interviewing, it it was a very fun process. I wasn't as as nervous as I would have been if I had not You know practice with people beforehand and this is something that I learned from previous interviews prior to this this round of uh, faculty applications I did try for for jobs and I think that was in 2018 2019 and I did very very poorly During my interviews, because I never thought to practice with anybody, I just thought, hey, it's an interview, they're just going to ask me about myself and, and I will tell them because who better than me to tell other people about myself, but that is, that is not true, you need to practice what you're going to say, how you're going to respond and all of that stuff. So I would say practice, 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 join peer mentoring communities. Be very open to asking those who are more senior than you are for help. If you need help with someone going through your application package, reach out. People are always you would be surprised that people are always happy and open to to assisting with these types of things.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned that you did a couple of different postdocs. I'm going to ask another two part question. I feel like I I stay asking two part questions. Hopefully they're not confusing, but one I would love to know, you know, the time between your PhD, like when you got your degree till now, and like, you know, the number, the time that passed between um all the you know postdocs and and temporary teaching positions that you did in between and why i'm asking that is because i'm curious now that you mentioned that you went on the market you know you said 2018 2019 like 3 years ago 3 4 years ago and now you went on the market again i think that there's this i don't know if it's a misconception or i was even told and i see it in job postings you know there would be a lot of job postings for assistant professors that'll say you know PhD within like you had to have your PhD like less than five years ago or like less than three years ago. So I would love for you to speak on one how you thought about the time in between when you got your PhD to when you were ready to go on the job market. So that that's like kind of one thing, um, and then whether you felt that you were at a advantage or disadvantage, or rather maybe talk about the pros and cons mm-hmm. of going on the market. You know, x amount of years after receiving your PhD. I'm not sure if hopefully this makes sense i just feel like i've been seeing job yeah they're just all jobs are like oh within 3 years within 5 years i'm like but what if you were just doing other things in between so i just i kind of would love for you to speak on that if possible You
1: know, I think this is, I would say that this is one of the beauties of being naive about um, a specific system. One, when I went on the job market, I did not know anything about the U.S. faculty job market. So I did not know what expectations were. I wasn't prepared really, that first time. So I did ask a lot of questions. I could remember reaching out to very new assistant professors at the time to let them know that I was going on the market, to ask them what their experiences were. And people did send me the application packages. They were willing to talk to me. I did even reach out to some some professors who had openings in their departments to ask about the process. And they were really, really open to telling me, hey, these are the things that we're looking for. This is what you need. At the time, I did not know what a teaching philosophy was because this was one of the things that they had asked. And I was like, what is that? How does one write this kind of statement? and stuff so i had to start learning all of these things from scratch so i would say that i began learning during my first year on the market what the expectations were and how to put put together all of this required document so i am the kind of person who i guess i have my parents to thank for this they would usually make me attempt exams or attempt things before I am actually ready for them. So for me, my first goal on the job market was not necessarily to get a job. It was just to see, hey, what is this thing about? And do I have what it takes to, you know, land this kind of job? So when I got on the market this time, I was ready. I was really, really ready. I wasn't playing. I was going in to get a job and I did land several offers.
0: Yes. You weren't playing. I love that. I love it. I think that's also good and relevant advice, even for people who are, you know, towards the beginning of their doctoral journey, who are maybe applying for programs and not necessarily applying for jobs. you know, one strategy is to do all your research ahead of time and, you know, prepare yourself fully before you apply. Um, But I think that there is some value in, maybe applying before you're ready and taking it as a learning experience. Obviously, there's like a cost element to that because applications aren't free, which is like a whole nother issue. But Mm -hmm. I think that can be, yeah, that might be a potential way for someone who maybe feels as if they don't, you know, have enough resources, they don't know enough people who have been on this journey before them. You know, one of the best ways to learn how to do something is to just do it. So, um, I I think that was really good advice. I would also say that I was
1: only able to do that because I had a very, very supportive mentor. She knew what I was doing. So, like, sure, by all means, go ahead and try for these things and see where it lands you. I did not land academic jobs during that cycle, but I did land several uh, public health jobs during that cycle. So, it wasn't. totally wasted um, opportunity. I did learn from it and I was able to better prepare for the cycle where I actually got offers from. So it's important to have a supportive team behind you. I don't know that I would have been able to pull that off if my my mentor wasn't
0: supportive. Absolutely. And if you're looking for a mentor, cohort Sisters has got you covered. That's one of the things that we do is facilitate mentorship. It's It's so crucial. It's so important. And everyone has, like, everyone has mentors, if not just, you know, I think that that's a a misconception. It's like only we need mentors. Like everyone needs mentors. It's just that it's harder for us to find people to mentor us because there aren't that many people who look like us. And, you know, these spaces weren't designed with us in mind. So we just have to work a little bit harder, unfortunately, to find mentorship, but everyone needs mentorship. No one knows what they're doing ever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So as we kind of wind down and wrap up, what are you looking forward to in this new faculty position that you're going to start in a couple of months? Oh, that
1: is a good question. Well, first of all, I am looking forward to meeting these new colleagues in person. I have not met any of these people in person, so all of this has been based on uh, trust, So far, so I'm really, really looking forward to meeting people in person, looking forward to continuing in my research program and creating new collaborations, but mostly looking forward to meeting the next generation of scientists and working with them to explore their different interests and their different career paths. So I am the kind of person, and I would say this is thanks to my postdoc mentor, who she never restricted me. She was like, whatever it is that you want to do, please explore. And if it is something, if there's anything that I'm unable to help you with, I will try to find people with the right expertise to connect you to. So I am looking forward to to continuing that legacy. I'm looking forward to bringing that into my group and mentoring people in a similar way. So I'm looking forward, especially to working with People who look like me and who typically do not have access to adequate mentoring. So I'm looking forward to working with them and um, helping them explore different different, uh, career paths career interest and helping them make those decisions. I think that's the most rewarding part of what I do. It's fun to do research. It's fun to discover new things. But I think for me, it is most rewarding when you you find someone who has been working with you who realizes, hey, this is what I want to do. And they go on to excel in that thing.
0: Oh, love that! I'm so excited to continue following along your journey. I have a random bonus question, and then a final piece of advice to solicit from you. But bonus question: Is there a mosquito repellent that you recommend? What's your favorite mosquito repellent?
1: Ooh, okay. I would say anything with DEET in it is a good is a good choice. Okay.
0: All right. I just, I had to know. I, I'm the person who I'm the first to get bit all the time. So <laughs> I wanted to know from the expert <laughs> what I should be focusing on. So, last question What is, you know, you've given up a, a couple of different um, pointers for people, but what is one specific, like, final best piece of advice that you have for Black women who are considering pursuing a doctoral degree and maybe are considering? a variety of different locations. What is some advice that you would give them?
1: I would, I like this saying, I don't remember where I heard this phrase that everything is figure outable. So you are enough and you can figure out whatever it is you need to figure out to get to where you need to get to. Be open to asking questions there are no stupid questions really don't think about whether or not you sound foolish when you're asking questions because it's the only way to learn so be open to to asking questions seek mentoring cohort sisters is, is an exciting and awesome initiative where you can join and find peer mentors and also mentors who are more senior India, India journey. And with regards to exploring global options, same thing. I don't know that I would say anything different than that. If you find someone on another continent where you want to work in or live in, reach out to them and see. Sometimes they may not respond immediately or on the first uh, try, but be persistent. And if they don't respond, move on to somebody else.
0: Great advice. So thank you so much, Dr. Insadetta, for sharing your journey and story with us on the Cohort Sisters podcast. We will definitely continue following along all of about your research and your the next chapter of your life as an assistant professor. So thank you again. Sure. Thanks for having me. And this was really fun. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll catch you in next week's episode.